right. Well, if you've got a Bible um, or the Bible app, we'd uh, recommend that you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 so you can follow along today. Uh, and let's pray, and then we'll start working through, through this passage. Uh, Father, you're, you're good to us in gathering us together so we could worship you and so we could hear from you and hear from your word. And in these weeks are weeks of studying some hard passages. Uh, they're, they're hard because people have twisted these passages, perhaps more than most, to, to control and to abuse. We also know that there are a lot of people here who recoil even at hearing these passages because of past bad experiences with them. Um, there, there are others of us here who will have the way that we live helpfully challenged, but we won't want to change it. There are all kinds of reasons that we might miss the goodness that you have for us in the passage that we're going to read today. So we just pray that you would grant us eyes to see what this text truly says. Uh, give us a discernment about what it doesn't say. I pray that you would give me especially the ability to, to speak only what's in this text, only what it's saying, to not twist it or manipulate it or soft pedal it. And we ask that your spirit would help us to believe that this is your word, that it's good for us. I, we pray that you'd incline our hearts toward it and give us lives that reflect the beauty of it. Lord, everything we're doing here is vain unless your spirit comes and, and ministers to us. So we pray that whatever it takes for us to believe in Christ and embrace Christ and embrace the message of this passage, I pray that you would do that work on our heart so that we would. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new with us, um, we spend the, this teaching time going through books of the Bible, and we're continuing a, a multiple-month study through First uh, Peter now. And so we are picking up in First Peter chapter three, verse one, uh, believing that this is God's word, and this is the next section that we're going to work for, for work through for the good of our church today. Uh, we'll read the entire passage, and then we'll work through it. So First Peter three, starting in verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectable and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, Cody was kind enough to leave this passage for me to preach today, and <laughs> what, could, what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> this... <laughs> This is probably the section of this book that is the most offensive to some of our modern ears when we first hear it. Um, just about all these verses have ideas that could rub us the wrong way as we misconstrue them or could rub us the wrong way when we construe them just fine. Um, I mean, verse one, it could seem that wives are being told to silently submit to all the demands of their husbands. Verse three could be read as a prohibition against jewelry. Uh, verse four can make it sound like women are to be seen and not heard. In verse 6, Sarah calls her, husband's, her husband Lord, and Peter says that's a good idea. Uh, verse 7, women are called weaker vessels, and as Christians, we believe that this is God's word. So what do we do with this? Um, now, like on a serious note, it'll come as no surprise that many of the worst quote-unquote Christian marriages that I've ever seen have been marriages where the husband quoted these verses. I mean, especially verses 1 through 6. Most of verse 7 didn't make it into the mix. But, but there's a lot of misuse of this passage in, in our circles. 
And, and similarly, last week, Cody walked us through another difficult text where it was misused in American history to justify American chattel slavery. And, and today's text is misused still today to justify all kinds of abuse and control and mistreatment in marriage. So why would we do this? Why would we even walk through it? Well, I think, first of all, the fact that a biblical text can be interpreted and used the wrong way doesn't mean that there's no right interpretation of that text doesn't mean that there is no right use. It doesn't mean that those texts given by God, rightly applied, won't be good for us. And in fact, the fact that a lot of people use a text the wrong way gives us all the more reason to walk through it and study it because we know that it can be dangerous. And this is kind of why we try to teach our kids to swim as young as we possibly can because we want them to be safe around water as, as young as possible. We want them to learn the, the right way to handle that good but dangerous thing. And so we walk through texts like this because it's next in, in order here and because we want to, as Christians, be able to handle this good but dangerous text the right way. And so while there's all kinds of pressure in like cultural Christianity to skip over texts like this, we don't serve anyone well by avoiding them. We don't serve non-Christians well if we avoid them because they've heard people misuse these texts. They know they're in the Bible. We don't serve Christians well if we avoid these texts because they might be tempted to misuse them or, or to have wrong interpretations of them. And we don't serve husbands and wives well if we avoid a text like this because the Holy Spirit did inspire this text for our good and for the good of our marriages. And so, so as we walk through this text verse by verse, I'll do everything I can to try to diffuse some of those wrong uses of the text. But we also shouldn't assume that if we're getting the, the meaning of the text right, that everybody in our culture or everybody in our room will like it. I mean, we should all be appalled at the misuse of a text to abuse, but we should also expect that if the Bible is God's word, and it is, that it won't fit perfectly with the sensibilities of any culture, even if it's interpreted the right way. There, there's gotta be something in here that will challenge us and refine us and correct us and change us for the better. And I know that I grow the most when I come to a text that I don't like and I find ways to confess and change my life accordingly. And it's also important for us to, to walk through a text like this because most of us are, are Christians in this room today, meaning that we've received the, the matchless gift of, of faith in Jesus. And Peter's already told us that we were born again by the seed of the living word. The thing that was planted in our heart that made us Christians was the word of God. And so the same word of God that was planted in our hearts that brought us to Christ is the word of God that gives us this passage so we know that this passage must be good for us too. And so the goal today is to, to stick to this text as closely as possible so that if it does make you mad, my hope is that you're mad at the text and not at something that I added to it. And, and I also don't wanna be afraid of this text, but instead to, to mine it for what it is saying and the good that it is for us. And so, so let's work verse by verse through it. Verse, verse one, he says, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So looking closely, he starts with the word likewise. And this means that he is continuing a thought from the previous passages. I remember from the beginning of this book, Peter addresses the people who read this letter as elect exiles. They're people who are chosen by God, but they're not at home in the world. Um, because they're now Christians, because they have a different faith, a different ultimate, they're not in place in, in the world around them. And so they're wondering, how do we interact with this society that doesn't embrace the things that we embrace? And so he told us in chapter 2, verse 12, in that kind of society, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying that when we're around those people who don't believe, he calls them Gentiles in this passage, we're supposed to conduct ourselves honorably and be full of good deeds so that even though they'll say we're crazy, they will have to give God glory when they see the real evidence of good works in our lives, at least on that judgment day when everybody has to be honest. And then he goes on to apply that principle of doing good to non-Christians to specific institutions, specific places in life. He applies it to the government. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he says, if you're under a government that isn't Christian, a government that you probably can't change anyway, honorable conduct there looks like submission to the government, honor for the emperor, recognizing that God invented government for our good, even when people who don't know our Lord are, are running it. And so his application of chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct honorable, keep it good, is to submit even to pagan government. Then he goes on in the passage that Cody walked us through last week um, to, to speak to slaves. And again, Cody, unpack this. There was a very different institution than American slavery. Nothing in the Bible gives the slightest justification to what happens here. But, but in their society, under a very different institution of Roman slavery, he said to those slaves in chapter 2, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, gentle but to the unjust. So again, he says, keep your conduct toward an unjust master respectable. It's God's will that you do good. And again, this is with the qualification that Paul will say that slaves, if you can get your freedom, you should get your freedom. But when they can't, they're in the situation they can't change, they're called to do good. And now we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and Peter says, likewise. So he's, he's following a pattern here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So, so follow his train of thought. How should Christians live toward non-Christian government or government that's falling short of what it should be? Do good. How should Christians, slaves, live toward non-Christian masters who might be falling short of what they, they should be? He says, do good. And now how should Christian wives live toward non-Christian husbands or husbands who are falling short of what they should be? And we know that that's what he's talking about here because he says that these are husbands, many of whom do not obey the word. And back in chapter 2, verse 8, those who do not obey the word are those who don't believe. They're, they're not Christians. So in this passage, the situation that's in view is a wife comes to faith in Jesus, but her husband doesn't. This is a unique challenge. Everyone who comes to believe in Jesus is, is out of place in society in many ways. They're out of place in work in many ways. They're out of place at school in many ways. But then those of us who are married and have godly spouses, we can retreat to our home where we have the same ultimate, the same ultimate priority, and it can be a place of refuge for us. But what about those who are even exiles in their own home? What does she do? Now, by the way, the Bible does prohibit a Christian marrying a, a non-Christian for this reason. Because for both spouses to have different gods, different ultimates, that's not the recipe for an easy marriage most of the time. And so 2 Corinthians 6.14 says that believers are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. He said there's no fellowship that darkness has with light. So he calls us to avoid getting into a union like that. But what happens when that ship has sailed and you're in that situation? 
Either you got into that marriage sinfully, not paying attention to what God said you should have evaluated in a spouse, or you were married, and after that, one of you comes to believe. And this was an even more difficult situation for a wife in Rome because the husband decided the family religion. I mean, that's how it worked for them. He decided who they worshiped. He decided how they worshiped. He decided how, what they should raise the kids believing. And now the wife has come to know the Lord. And she can't worship his God anymore. She, she can't do that. She wants to follow his leadership, but on the most important thing, she can't. Which, by the way, does tell us something about the nature of the submission that he's calling for here. When he's calling wives to be subject to their own husbands, it's not an absolute submission. And because the whole framework of this is she can't submit on the most important thing. She shouldn't submit on the most important thing. So biblical submission is, is not doing absolutely everything that he wants. It's not, not having your own brain. This is a woman who has her own mind, who knows the Lord, and is commanded by God not to go along with her husband's desire to worship another god. So her being subject is not totally absolute. Being subject does not mean going along with everything that he wants. Also notice that he says to be subject to your own husband. Now some people will twist this verse and, and make it seem like it's saying that women in general must submit to men in general, that women should do what men say. But the submission that he calls for here is limited to her own husband. There's one that she submits to. It's to one man, not, not men in general. I've known guys who've had a hard time submitting to female bosses at work because, you know, this passage says she should submit to him. No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, you should do what she says. Um, she's your boss. You have no authority over her on the basis of your gender. This is t talking about a husband-wife relationship. So those are some things that submission is not, but, but what is it? I mean, it must mean something. And the fact that biblical submission doesn't look like Handmaid's Tale, and that it doesn't, mean like, it doesn't look like all the worst caricatures of it, doesn't mean that it means nothing. Well, I think a decent summary of what biblical submission is, if I had to sum it up, and this is adapted a little bit from, from a statement in, in the Acts 29 network, the, the network that our church is part of, it means that, that men and women are, are created in the image of God and are therefore equal before God as people. They have equal access to God through Christ. They both have the same moral dignity. They both have the same value. Husbands and wives are both responsible to God for spiritual nurture and vitality in their home. And God has given the man special responsibility to lead his wife and family in accordance with the servant leadership and the sacrificial love that was demonstrated by Jesus. And this, this principle of a husband's headship should never be confused with and should never give any hint of domineering control, but instead it should look like Jesus. It should be the loving, tender, and nurturing care uh, coming from a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. And now when that's practiced in a grace-filled Christian marriage by two humble people, it's beautiful and good. It paints a picture of the love that Jesus has for his church, and that model is nothing to apologize for, but it's one to celebrate. It's one to embrace. It's one to strive to live out. I mean, Ephesians says this. This is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So notice in that passage the mutual giving of the self to the other. Notice the the sanctification. Notice the leading like Jesus leads. Notice the distinction in role, but the equality in dignity. This is what God calls us to, to believe and embrace. And I think there are two lies in our day that contradict each other that are both embraced by our culture. And, and the one lie is the lie that men and women are the same. And the other lie, also embraced by our culture, is the lie that men and women must always be at odds with one another. Now, both of those things can't be true. But both of those things are embraced by our culture, and they hold to both of them as truth claims. But the Bible holds out a very different picture. It, it holds out the truth that, that men and women are created unique from one another, but also equal in value and dignity that they're both made in God's image, they're both sinful and fallen, they're both in need of Jesus, but they're also made with tremendous potential for cooperation and complementarity, particularly when both have been redeemed by Jesus and they're striving to love and serve one another in response to the gospel they believe. Now our culture says men and women are the same and men and women are at war with one another. The Bible acknowledges that we can corrupt the design and it can look like that, But if we live according to the biblical design, men and women in marriage can live with a beautiful and dignity-affirming cooperation as they complement one another in that union that represents Christ in the church. It's a good thing. But remember, Peter is dealing with a little bit of a different situation. The, The wife believes, but her husband doesn't. So what should she do? I mean, this was a new thing. The gospel was spreading in Rome. This is like the first generation of Christians. They didn't have these situations that they've been through before. So should she leave him now because they're so different? I mean, they have very different gods. Your God's the most important thing to you. Should they expect not to cooperate in life anymore? Because, you know, how could they if they have different gods? She's talked to him about the gospel, but he won't have it. So since wives in Rome didn't determine the household religion, should she even try? Should she try to persuade him to believe? What should her strategy be? I mean, notice again that she wants to win him. But this wasn't done in their day. I mean, he decided the household religion, but Peter has the assumption here that this godly wife is a force in that house that can win her husband to faith in Jesus. That the power of that godly wife is a force to be reckoned with. It would have been unheard of in Rome to change your husband's religious beliefs. It would have been unimaginable that that would ever happen because they had a wrong view of women that the Bible then came along and corrected. She has so much potential that she can win him without a word. 
Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't need to hear the truth of the gospel to be saved. He certainly does. 1 Peter 1.23, he said, again, we're born again through the living word. We need the words. We need the truth. But once he's heard it and it's clear to him, he probably doesn't need more words. For a lot of us, there can be a temptation when we're trying to persuade people of something, especially something that's so dear to us, to just keep repeating ourselves, to say more than we need to to try to reach someone, to start to manipulate with words, to be overbearing in our excitement. I think most of us have had that experience. We came to faith in Christ, we wanted to share Christ with people, and we went overboard. We bowled them over with our words. But Peter says if he's going to be one, he'll be one when he sees the conduct of his life. And then he unpacks what that conduct looks like. Verse 2, he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So she doesn't lose respect for her husband because he's not a believer. She still treats him with respect. She stays loyal. I mean, he's got to be wondering, she, doesn't, she won't worship the God that I worship? We don't do that in our culture. Of course she should worship my God, and she won't do it. So is she going to take off? Is she going to be against me? Peter's like, no, no, keep respecting him. Don't deny Christ, don't sin, don't follow him into sin, but show him that you're for him. Keep respecting him, keep, keep loving him. Also, he says that her conduct is pure. She's come to faith in Christ, but she's not looking for another guy. The guys at church who love Jesus are, are not alluring to her. And her respect and her loyalty are so strong that, that he sees it, and he's still confident in her. So he keeps going. He unpacks some other aspects of her conduct. Verse 3, he says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So again, starting with what this verse is not saying, this verse is not saying that it's a sin to braid your hair. It's not saying it's a sin to wear jewelry or makeup or to dress fashionably. It's not prohibiting any of these things because look at the things that he says. He says, don't let your adorning be external. Number one, the braiding of hair. Number two, the wearing of gold, or number three, clothing. So if this verse is prohibiting jewelry and nice hairstyles, it's also prohibiting the wearing of clothing. So this is not an, an absolute prohibition against those things. I mean, in, in fact, physical beauty for men and for women is given as something that can be cultivated for God's glory and honor. He's not prohibiting those things. It, it, it's not wrong to do those things, but he is prohibiting being enslaved to the whims of the culture having to have the latest and newest fashions to make you feel confident. He's prohibiting thinking that the way to win him, first and foremost, will be with your physical beauty. Because remember, Peter's formula for winning those that don't believe, that are in authority over you, back in chapter 2, verse 12, is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good looks. No, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The thing that can win him is the thing that's totally unexplainable without God in her life. Verse 4, he says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And now again, this could be a verse that, and it is a verse that has been used to try to silence women or to say that the only acceptable female personality is very mousy and shy, that she shouldn't be heard. But when he says to have a gentle and quiet spirit, neither of those words is only used to describe women in the Bible. And the word gentle is used to describe Jesus, who spoke 
who was bold, who was confident, who was intelligent, who was no pushover at all. In fact, in Matthew 21, verse 5, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in his triumphal entry, he's riding in, he's winning, they're worshiping him, he's being adored by the crowds, it says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, it's the same word as gentle, same Greek word, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus calls himself gentle in Matthew 11, verse 29, same word. So this doesn't mean mousy. These are the meek who will inherit the earth. Again, it's the same word. It means those who rely on God fully rather than their own strength, and they trust God to arrange the details of their lives. So that's gentle. And then quiet can be translated tranquil. Paul tells Timothy to, to pray for the authorities so that they would allow us all to lead tranquil lives. This, this isn't silent lives. It's, it's more like still waters, peaceful lives. It's a strong dignity even in the face of adversity. It's tranquility that can speak and speak fearlessly. And so Peter says, you want a chance at winning your husband? Relentlessly trust God so that God steadies you. So that God makes you tranquil. So that you can live with a joy-filled and quiet resolve and not in a panicked or anxious way like you might be tempted to live in with this difficulty in your home. And then to give a little bit more weight to this interpretation, verse 5, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. So Sarah called her husband Lord. And he says, this is a good example for wives today. Now in this room, I know that we have a lot of good Christian marriages. And it's a pretty safe bet that none of the wives in this room have ever called their husband Lord. I, I know that if I had a nickel, if I only had a nickel for every time Debbie called me Lord, I would have no nickels. Like, not, not at all. No, none. Um, we, we hear Lord, and we tend to think that it means God, because, I mean, we call Jesus Lord. But it's really just a title of respect that could be applied all the way up to God, but also just is, is respect for anyone that does have leadership over you. It's a, it's a title of respect. And so all this is saying is that Sarah respected her husband. She followed his leadership. And that was her adorning. Now, I wish we had time to go through their whole story, which, which we don't, but, but Abraham and Sarah were no perfect couple. He was certainly not a perfect husband. But when Abraham led their family, she respected him enough to follow, even though, honestly, some of it was a little bit crazy. I mean, she just had this innate respect for him, but he comes along and he's like, yeah, you're gonna have a baby. And she's like, I'm pushing 100. <laughs> and he's like, God told me. And, and so she, she followed. She, she believed. They moved out of their homeland into another land where they didn't speak the language. They didn't worship the same God as the people around them. They felt like they were strangers and sojourners while they were there. But she said, if God's calling us to this, I'm up for it. She ventured into life courageously by his side. And so he's calling the, the, Peter's calling these wives here in Rome to be like that. Be like Sarah, who trusts in God. She hopes in God so much that it dissolves her fears. She's able to believe in the God who gave her her husband so much that even when she's, she's not completely on board with some of this leadership, it's not sinful, it's not wrong, it's not abusive, but, it's, but man, it's scary sometimes. She, she follows and, and goes along on the adventure of following Christ. And he says to be like that. 
And he says, if you're like that, you might win your husband. So now he turns to the husbands in verse 7. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Some translations say live with her according to knowledge. Uh, He's calling husbands to know their wives, to know their particular wives, and to live with them according to that knowledge. So what does that mean? Well, it means that, that husbands are called to know their wives' uniqueness, to know their uniqueness as a woman, but also know their uniqueness among women. That, to know that women are not the same as men, but also to know that not all women are the same as each other. I think sometimes one of the errors in, in a lot of our Christian marriage books is that they can be so generalized and they can present such a huge, like, cookie-cutter way of relating to wives that, that sometimes guys can be programmed to believe that all of our wives are the same in every regard. So if you were to make the statement, you know, wives like it when you buy them flowers. Well, some do, but not all women are the same. And so Peter says, know your wife. Know her. What, what makes her feel loved and supported? What refreshes her? What does she need to thrive spiritually? What does she like to do? What are her strengths that you can, uh, can build in an environment where those strengths can be multiplied and thrive? What are her weaknesses that you can help her with? So Peter's calling here for a huge level of attention from husbands to wives. And again, this is something that was totally not the norm in Rome. He gives husbands the responsibility to give ourselves to understanding our own unique wives as the unique women God made them to be and to create an environment at home where she, in particular, thrives. One of the indications that masculine leadership at home is being carried out the right way is that she's thriving. And sometimes, though not always, if she's wilting, it's an indicator that something's going wrong in our leadership. So Peter says, understand her. Know her. Don't use your leadership to be domineering. Use your leadership to create an environment where she thrives. And then in verse 7, he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And the word weaker there is usually applied to physical strength when it's translated elsewhere. So, so this passage, and this is super important, this passage is not calling women morally weaker or spiritually weaker. I mean, he just got done reminding us of the courage and the resolve of Sarah. He just told us that, that a godly woman is a force to be reckoned with in her home that could even win her husband without a word. It wouldn't make sense that he would be calling women weaker in, in some way that made them morally inferior. That's not the meaning here. It can't be. It seems that he's just referring to the obvious general rule that, that in general, men have bigger and stronger physical frames than women. And I know there are exceptions to that, but he's speaking in general. It's a true generality. It's probably true that in an arm wrestling match, I could beat 19 out of the 20 women here. And it's not because I'm the buff, athletic, workout fanatic that most of you probably think I am. It's, it's not. It's, it's just the guys are generally bigger. Like, they're, they're made with a bigger frame. That, that, that's obvious. Now, sometimes guys, when they interact with other guys, um, they exploit weakness especially in competitive settings. Like today, the Bills are going to be playing the Jacksonville Jaguars, and good news is that the Jaguars have one of the worst defenses against the pass in the NFL, and the Bills can throw the ball. 
And so, so today should be a really fun game to watch it, because we're going to, to our delight, watch Josh Allen exploit their weakness. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to run right into their weakness. Should be a lot of fun. We'll see what happens because they surprise us sometimes. But it, we watch them exploit weaknesses and we say that's a good thing. In war, you know where the enemy is, is weak and that's where you attack. So here you have husbands who are generally physically stronger than their wives. And Peter says that should never, ever, ever be something that's exploited. That's the kind of thing that should be honored. And that word for honor can actually be translated precious, that, that the Christian husband is to make their wives feel precious and honored and never, ever afraid of him because of his relative physical strength. That physical weakness is not to be exploited. It, it, exploited. It's a cause for protection. It's a cause for chivalry, for honor, for provision for her, for protection and physically defending her from danger, particularly from bad guys who would exploit weaknesses. And this means that any kind of yelling at her, intimidating her, in any way threatening her, speaking to her like she's your employee or like she's your child, it's all out of line. We honor, we don't intimidate. Because that may be how a man treats an opponent, but it's never how he treats his treasured wife. That should never be the case among us. We cherish her, and this is the case for biblical chivalry. And here's where I go beyond the text, um, but I know I'm right. Um, things like holding doors and paying for the date and giving her your coat when she's cold and your umbrella when it's raining your spot on the lifeboat when the cruise ship is sinking. There should be this sense of, of chivalry and preferring her above ourselves. And so we're called as guys to learn the things that show honor to women in our culture and do those things if we're married for our wives especially. And again, I know that's not in the Bible, but it is the good and necessary consequence of believing the Bible. So that's, that's, it's good stuff. You know, I had a friend in, um, uh, in college who went on his first date with this, this woman, and they went for a walk in the woods, and some of his friends, who were kind of like the prankster type, caught wind of the fact that they were going to be going for a walk in the woods. So they decided that it would be a, a fun thing to do to hide in the woods and then jump out. I can't remember. I think they were, like, wearing masks, but, like, basically to scare them as they were walking along that path. And this friend of mine pushed the woman in front of himself <laughs> and ran the other way. True story. It's even crazier is they're now married. But um, it was, and honestly, he, he's a really good guy who just had a bad day. But, but why, <laughs> why did you laugh when I told you that story? Because men and women are the same, right? Like, like why, why should that matter? Well, we laugh because that's absurd. Like that kind of behavior is absurd behavior because we know they're different. We know they are. We know that there's a certain call for chivalry there, that, that he shouldn't be the one putting her in front of him. And honestly, if men and women are exactly the same, there's no reason to laugh, but you laughed. Because we know that that's not the way, the way things should be. We have to remember that, that our wives are, are to be treasured, are to be protected. She's not your employee, she's not your child, she's not your opponent. Peter next says, since they are heirs with you, of the grace of life, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, in Rome, again, the wife may very well have been looked at as the highest of all the household servants, um, that, that she was essentially like a, a chief servant in the house. But Peter comes along and he says, no, she's right by her husband's side as a co-heir of the grace of life. And Peter is, again, probably pulling some language from the commonly told story about Abraham. But, but in Hebrews 11:9, when it describes Abraham, it says, By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. So he tells the, the story of the patriarchs, the great people of the faith, and he says there was Abraham, and there's Isaac, and there's Jacob. And Peter comes along, and he applies this term, co-heirs, to his wife, which would have been unheard of. So it's almost like he's balancing that previous statement. He says, dwell with them in an understanding way as the weaker vessels, and just in case you think that I mean that weaker vessels means that they're less important than you, that they're less connected to Jesus than you, that they can only connect to God through you, let me make it abundantly clear that that's not what I mean, because they are co-heirs with you. Like Jacob and Isaac were co-heirs with Abraham. Your wife is a co-heir of the grace of life with you. Weaker in frame but right by your side before God in access. Different in some roles that they play at home, but not less than you ever. And he says, so honor her. Honor her so that your prayers would not be hindered. What does that even mean? One key to interpreting Peter is knowing that he often repeats himself, but in slightly different ways, and it helps us kind of understand the meaning. And pretty soon in chapter three, verse 12, he'll say this. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So those who actively do evil can expect God to be against them. And the righteous can expect him to hear their prayers. And so taken together with verse seven, this means that those of us who are married, we are not living holy Christian lives if we're mistreating our spouses. No matter how good we are at all the other Christian stuff. Those of us who are married are not living healthy Christian lives if we're not doing our part to cultivate a healthy marriage. This means that our prayers are hindered at best and God is against us at worst if we aren't cultivating the marriages that he gave to us. And we can be really tempted to be outward crusaders for Christian issues and Christian causes out there, but then give ourselves a pass for being cruel to our wives and not honoring them. But Peter says, your prayers are not working right if you're not honoring your wife. This means that sometimes holiness doesn't require us to go out for another night to evangelize or to protest something. Those things have important places in the Christian life. But it might be far more holy to go on a date with your wife or to give your wife a night out without the kids or whatever she in particular, your wife specifically, might need. That might be the more holy thing to do. D.L. Moody said, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. In fact, it doesn't really make sense to try to tell people about Jesus, but not give attention to our marriages if we're married, because marriage exists, first and foremost, to tell people about Jesus. And that's what he said in Ephesians 5.32. He says, this mystery, this, the mystery of marriage is profound. There's a lot I don't get about marriage, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This I know. Marriage is designed by God to paint a picture of the kind of love that Christ have, has for his church. 
So tell a true story with your marriage. This means that a marriage that becomes cold or stuffy or joyless doesn't say the right thing about God. It actually portrays God as someone who would steal our joy through religion rather than give us joy in the gospel. A marriage that's inattentive doesn't say the right things about God. In Ephesians 5, we read that God looks at his bride and works to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He pays attention to his church. And then he says, love your spouse like that. So tell the truth about the gospel with your marriage, by paying great attention to each other. Help each other where you're weak. Notice when one is distant. Work to reconcile quickly. Confess sins honestly. Never let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians tells us. Also, a marriage that's less than fully committed doesn't preach the truth about the gospel. Jesus gave his life for the church. There wasn't a limit to his love or forgiveness. There was nothing tentative about his commitment. Jesus said to the church, till death do us part, and then he meant it. He died for the church. Jesus is a God who who loved his people so much that he gave his life to cleanse them, was committed to them until death, pays full attention to them even now, hearing our prayers. And he does that whole thing not just out of duty, but out of delight. And we're called to paint a picture of that with our marriage. Now, in case there's any doubt, nothing I've said today should should justify any kind of abuse or domineering situation. No wife should feel any kind of Christian pressure to continue to receive abuse. These texts do not say that. Sometimes it it takes the courage of Sarah to remove yourself from an abusive situation. It it takes a call to the church or call to the police. We we wouldn't say to keep receiving abuse. So, So don't hear that at all in these texts. But what these texts are saying that we do everything in our power in our marriages to paint a beautiful picture of the love that Jesus has for his church so that the world could see something so different that our conduct would be so unique that they will speak against us as evildoers and say these Christians are crazy about everything but then they're just going to have to glorify God on the day that he visits us because man there was a witness to something so different and so beautiful in the Christian home let's pray But Father, who measures up to this? You've called us to love like your son loves, and we all fall short, desperately short. We haven't painted the right picture with our love and our honor. We haven't painted the right picture with our submission and respect, with our courage and tranquility. And so I think anyone in this room who's married feels the weight of our failure. I think our singles in this room also feel the ways that that they have failed to love as you have loved, to defer to others, to submit to the rightful authorities in their lives. We hear all this, and it'd be hard to believe that our prayers aren't hindered. So we have a lot to confess and repent of. And and we pray that now, in, in our seats and in the silence, that we would do so. So I'd encourage you all to take a minute um, just to confess your sins to God. With that, commit to doing what's necessary to walk out repentance, which might mean asking forgiveness from a spouse. Might mean redoubling some efforts at home. 
as singles, it might mean actively looking for ways to serve others in sacrificial, other-preferring love. It can mean a lot of different things, but I'm confident in the Spirit's work in your heart to, to bring those things to your attention. And so for the next minute or so, let's just quietly pray, confess our sins to God, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we all know that as we confess sins like these, they're so serious that we have only one hope. And that's that Jesus Christ has borne our sins fully upon the cross. And those, those of us who have become Christians here, who are, are believing in Christ and Christ alone for our forgiveness and salvation, and who have confessed our, our known sins to him today, we celebrate that hope as we take the Lord's Supper together. As we eat the bread from that cup, it, it represents the body of Christ that was shed for you to take the punishment for sins that we deserve. And then the cup represents his blood that was shed to bring us into a new covenant, something like a marriage with God, where, where he's cleansed us and forgiven us and now calls us part of his bride. And so during the next song, and again, this is just for Christians. If, if you haven't yet come to faith in Christ or you're a Christian who's clinging to sin and you know it, taking the Lord's Supper is not for you. It's, it's to announce that you have a different hope when you do take it. But if you've believed in Christ and trusted in him, you've confessed your known sins, you trust in Christ and Christ alone and believe that you can approach him because of what he's done, we'd encourage you to eat this bread and drink this cup to show the Lord's death as your only hope until he returns. So this is a really powerful observance for us. It's, it's powerful not because of the innate power in the bread or the wine, but it's powerful because this little piece of bread represents the greatest feast for our soul that there is in the body of Christ that was torn for us. It's powerful because even this little cheesy COVID peel-off sip of wine becomes the finest wine in the world as it represents the greatest hope we have because of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're clinging to Christ and Christ alone, you've confessed your sins, then take this and eat it to preach the gospel to yourself and to all those around you again. Do it with joy as you believe that gospel. If you didn't grab the communion um, supplies when you came in, you can grab them at a table at any time during these next couple songs uh, and do this as often as you do it to show the Lord's death until he comes.